this morning as we have gathered here in the name of Christ. Our nation's military is addressing some unfinished business across the seas. During the Gulf War, as we know, America liberated Kuwait and returned home, perhaps a little too soon. Twelve years later, our army is striving to finish that earlier campaign by removing the tyrant who continues to his reign of terror. Our president has boldly declared that our armies will not return until they have finished this business. Our armies are committed to remove the Iraqi dictator from power to topple his regime, whatever the cost and however long it takes, claims our commander-in-chief. Perhaps. Perhaps not. Only God knows if unseen circumstances, unaccounted enemies, and hidden costs of various sorts may deter our armies from this mission. All assurances and indications to the contrary notwithstanding, we do not know the end. And we can never know the end. And in another sense, no victory can ever be complete in this world. Because there are prisoners of war and there are those missing in action who will never return home. And any victory would be tinged with defeat to some degree, in that some of our soldiers will return home in a coffin. No matter the glory of the victory, there will be families in this land who will forever weep. No matter the glory of the victory, it cannot be absolute and complete. For there are those who have already died on our side. And there are those who have died on the other side of this world. Now, I want us to think here as Christians. I want you to consider today that we are foot soldiers in a yet greater cosmic battle. Our commander-in-chief is God. The great enemy is death. And the unfinished business of this endeavor is the death of death. As long as death rules in this world, as long as people die, God has unfinished business to attend. And we as foot soldiers in this raging battle realize that we are likely to fall into the enemy's hands. Unless Jesus returns, death will capture us. But we gather on this first day of the week and we sing in the presence of God and His angels, and we sing together, it is well with my soul. How can we sing such a song? We sing and we pray and we announce that God will win this war. The great enemy of death stalks our every move. He mutes every victory that we win. For no matter what we accomplish in this world, we eventually give in to this conqueror, death. This enemy is vicious and powerful. But we declare as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we declare as believers in the Gospel this morning that this enemy of death is doomed. Our commander will win this war. There are no contingencies 
There are no unforeseen enemies and circumstances. We know with authority that he will win, and so we can sing with great confidence, it is well with my soul. And this war will not be won until death has been dethroned. And every prisoner of war who belongs to Christ is released into his eternal care. Victory will be complete. All of Christ's soldiers will return home. Death will be annihilated. How can we dream such dreams? How can we declare such a vision and really believe it? How can we have such confidence? I think the answer is that we have been saved. Uh, I guarantee, I might be wrong, but I would suspect, let's put it that way, that when our commander-in-chief, who once again, and I check the papers every Sunday morning in about seven seconds just to make sure the world didn't change since I looked at it last, but there again today was a statement from him that we will prevail, but I suspect that there are moments when there are nervous thoughts that go through the mind of our commander-in-chief and all of our military leaders. What if this? What if that? What if this? What will we face? What may happen? What are the contingencies? There are no contingencies in God's battle plan. He will win. He will beat death. How do we know we come here today and there is in our heart a sense that we are saved? Chapter 15 and verse 1 of this great chapter, Paul writes to some who were saved. My brothers, now brothers, that is the brotherhood, the family of God, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. That is, if you have believed in truth, you are saved Otherwise, you have believed in vain. You've believed a false message. But if you have believed, you are saved. And that salvation rests upon what? Verse 3, For I received what I passed on to you of first importance, of primary importance, among all things, this, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, and that He appeared to numerous individuals listed here through verse 8. This message was declared by the apostles, verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. But how does that fit together now? What does our salvation have to do with the defeat of death? How is our salvation connected to this cosmic battle against death? Well, it's not at all if our theology is wrong. But if our theology is right, and if we are genuinely, genuine believers, then there is a, a deposit, a down payment, a foreshadowing of this victory in your very soul this morning. The victory has started with you. If our theology is right, and that leads us again to Paul's challenge to the Corinthians, we notice the issue here in chapter 15 is found in verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ 
has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? The Corinthians had embraced a false doctrine. Some had. Some were saying. Paul says, Corinthians, listen, we rejoice in your salvation. We rejoice in this gospel of Christ, His death, His resurrection, this gospel that has saved you. At least some of the Corinthians believed this message. They had believed in Paul's message of Christ's death to sin, His resurrection from the dead, so that Paul speaks of them as my brothers. Verse 1 of chapter 15. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, there can be no question that Paul views the Corinthian church as believers. These are people who responded to the gospel of Christ and were saved from sin. But there was a problem. Paul has learned through some means that some within the church were saying there's no resurrection of the dead. How did they come to that notion? Well, we don't know all of the specifics. In the case of the Corinthians, what we do know is that this was common belief in the Hellenistic world in which the Corinthians lived. They lived in a time, in an era, where the idea of resurrection was not popular. The notion that immortality was gained through a resurrection of the body was out. What was in the in idea, the popular notion, was that, re- that immortality was gained by escaping the body. The body was a worthless tomb for the soul. It was a shell to be discarded and left behind forever. What mattered was the spirit. And there, were, there was plenty of that in the Corinthian church. They felt they were somehow part of this great spirit life and were soon to leave aside their earthly shell That was victory, they thought. And so the Corinthian believers were influenced, and I think this is the main point, one of the main points for us to take with us. They were influenced by the philosophies of their culture. They permitted the worldview of their pagan neighbors and upbringing to determine the bent of their doctrine. Now there are three possibilities here. Let me address them very briefly because I don't know the answer to this. What did they actually believe? There are those that would say that they believe this. Jesus rose from the dead, but no one else will. That's a possibility. Secondly, some would say that their thinking was that Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead. You see the difference. The first view, possibly that Christ did, but we won't. The second, nobody does. And not even Christ has risen from the dead. Now, this is the common way of taking this passage, that they are denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that the entire chapter is a defense of the resurrection of Christ. I don't, I, I'm having some real trouble with that common way of reading this. But if they were denying the resurrection of Christ, Paul's argument in verse 13 and following just really doesn't seem to hold together. You would think that verse 12 would be placed before verse 3. In other words, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? Let's go back to what is of first importance. Remember, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and and that would seem to be the case. But what seems more likely to me, the third option, is that they were so enamored with the popular beliefs of their day that they had essentially forgotten Paul's teaching that Jesus rose from the dead. 
which fits very much with that first option. There might be a little nuance of difference, but they were, the point is they were so taken with the popular view of the day that they were putting two, to two and two together and not coming up with four. And that seems to fit the context here, for verse 1 of chapter 15 starts out how? Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. I want to remind you of what you know. He doesn't start with, why are you denying the resurrection of Christ? Let's go back to the gospel. He says, I want to remind you of what you have in some sense left aside, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think then, as the text flows out to verse 12, verses 1 through 11, Paul is getting them nodding. They're saying, yes, 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 we were saved. Yes, we take our stand on the gospel. Yes, Jesus died. Yes, Jesus rose from the dead. Now, Let me get your attention here, says Paul. I want you to think about something. That then seems to fit very well with his flow of thought at verses 13 and following. I'm convinced that they did not probably directly deny the resurrection of Christ. That is the gospel they embraced. And if this was an all-out attack on the resurrection of Christ, I think Paul would address it that way. But clinging to this popular, sophisticated belief of their day, which denied the bodily resurrection, they had brought an element from outside Christian doctrine, had placed it inside the church, and it was corrupting the very foundation of their doctrine, and they did not know it. Something that's going on in churches all over this world to our very day, and probably to some degree within our own. There are thoughts that we bring in that are extraneous to the truth of God and they corrupt our thinking. This is the case with the Corinthians. And so we find at verse 13 that Paul draws out for them the implications of denying the resurrection. So I'm saying this all up front. I don't read Paul as saying, listen, you are denying the gospel of Christ. Because you are denying that Jesus rose from the dead. You are lost. He's not saying that, but he's saying, we agree on the resurrection and the death of Christ. The gospel has saved us. Now he puts his shoulder around the Corinthians, so to speak, and says, I want you to think about this. Implication number one, verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. You can't have it both ways. And to me, this argument makes no sense again if the Corinthians were flat out denying the resurrection of Christ. Paul's saying, here's the implication of what you're thinking. Do you realize you're denying the resurrection of Christ? They had embraced the resurrection of Christ when they took their stand on the gospel, verse 1, by which they were saved, verse 2. And so again, I think if if some had leveled a direct attack against the validity of Christ's resurrection, Paul would have rebuked them. What he says, rather, is, listen, you say believers are not going to rise from the dead. Let's think about the implications. If you say that there is no resurrection of the body, Jesus Christ had a body. He was fully man. And therefore, if man does not rise from the dead, then Jesus did not rise from the dead. 
If resurrection is a fallacy, you must apply that to Jesus. His body has decayed into final and irremediable corruption. That's your first implication. If you deny resurrection to any man, you deny resurrection to Jesus Christ. Second implication, verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. This argument hails back to verse 1. Paul says, Christ crucified and risen is what I preach to you. When you were saved from your godless lives, chapter 6, and that message is what you believed unto salvation. If people do not rise from the dead, Christ is not risen, and thus my gospel and your faith are useless. If Jesus did not rise from his tomb in Jerusalem some two decades ago, we have nothing. And what is more, third implication, verse 15, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. Who, are, who is the we here? Who is the we? The we are the apostles of verse 11. We, this is the message we preach to you. We, the apostles, are false teachers. The Greek amplified might read, our character has been searched out. We have been discovered to be false witnesses about God. In other words, if there is no resurrection of the dead, all the apostles are lying in the name of God. And so he reiterates in verses 16 and 17. Verse 16 goes back to verse 13. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And verse 17, a repetition of verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. This verse 17 adds to the idea of verse 14 the word useless, which means futile or aimless or it leads nowhere or empty. Could I put it in our terms? You can't sing it is well with my soul. Your Faith is empty and aimless. Your soul is headed to a bodiless, expressionless self-consciousness through all eternity. It's not well with your soul. Death is going to win. You're still in your sins. Chapter 6, he had talked about the wonderful salvation that they had experienced out of a world of great depravity and ugliness. They had been given life. They'd been freed from their sins. Chapter 15 and verse 5, he brings that notion out of their freedom from sin. And what is his desired conclusion? We're no longer dead in our sins because Christ has risen. But if he has not risen, as some of you say, let's go on to a fourth implication, verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Who are those people? It was verse 18. Who are those that have fallen asleep in Christ? These are believers who have died. They died as believers. These foot soldiers who have been captured by the great enemy death, if I can use our analogy here, these foot soldiers who are now POWs in death's death camp, they ain't ever coming back. They're gone. Death is the separation of the spirit from the body. And if that separation is final, then death is final. Does that make sense? If the separation from the spirit from the body is final, then death is final. It wins. 
And those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those of your believers who have gone before you and have already died in Christ, that death is final. That separation is forever. So here's his conclusion on this point, verse 19. Verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. I don't think he's saying here we made this great gamble that we hit the jackpot in heaven by living this miserable life here. Boy, did we ever lose. There's no better life than the Christian life. You can't live with any better, wise, joyful results than the Christian life. That's not what he's saying. But maybe by way of illustration, who's to be more pitied? Let's take a little girl who stays home on a Saturday while her dad works according to his schedule. He works all day on Saturday and she stays at home and plays and expects him to be gone. She doesn't expect anything. But there's another girl whose dad has promised to take Saturday off and take her horseback riding and then out for dinner at her favorite restaurant. And she's got all of this expectation, this future, uh, looking ahead to this Saturday. And on the day of that event, dad has to work. A double shift. Who's to be more pitied? We are to be more pitied than anyone else because of our expectation. We have this hope in eternal life we have this great and glorious hope that allows us to sing in a world of trial and difficulty. It is well with my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the faith will be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. We are looking ahead. If all of that does not come true, our expectations are, will crash. And we are to be pitied more than anyone who has no hope and is looking simply to annihilation or worse after death. But to the contrary, Paul proposes, matters are quite different. We look at the implications of the Corinthians' false thinking. Christ did not rise. None of you will rise. There is no hope. There is no salvation. There is no eternity if there is no resurrection. But, let's look at the assurance of resurrection beginning at verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. I thank God for those buts. But, this you think may be the case. Here are the implications. But you're wrong. There is grace in these words. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. That's what I've always preached and what you originally believed, says Paul. So what does it mean? Here's the implication. He has been raised from the dead. He is, second part of verse 20, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits. The first fruits were the first harvested gleanings from a ripe field of grain. Commonly, there would be a sacrifice made, that is, the grain, a, a small portion of grain would be cut down, the meal would be uh, ground up, and it would be baked as a sacrifice to appease the gods, or even within the Jewish ritual, to give thanks to God as a grain offering of the first fruits. But what was that ritual all about? It symbolized and foreshadowed the great harvest to follow. The worshiper was saying, by giving this first fruit sacrifice, I am appealing to the God to help me. And in the Jews' case, to the true Creator God to help me bring in the whole harvest. Well, you need to understand this, Corinthians, and we, Eden Baptist Church, need to understand Jesus' death was the first fruits. There's a whole harvest to come. 
Jesus' resurrection was God's first primary offensive against the enemy of death. Christ's resurrection set in motion a chain of events by which God would finally defeat death. Here's how that works. Verse 21. For since death came through a man, that's Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. All die in Adam. All are resurrected in Christ. There's a couple of ways of understanding that. I'm not sure which way to take it. But he's not saying that everyone becomes a Christian. That would conflict with all types of other teachings that Paul issues in other places. But we could see it this way. The lost are included in this resurrection, but they will be resurrected to eternal destruction. So the, the harvest field then in the picture of Paul here is all people, the saved, resurrected to eternal uh, presence with Christ, the lost, resurrected to eternal damnation. Another way to take it is that the conditions of those who enter Adam and those who enter Christ are different. To enter Adam, you simply need to be born. To enter Christ, you need to be born again. To Adam, for in Adam it is birth, in Christ it is new birth. Obviously, this is not teaching universalism, but it could be said this way, and perhaps this is the best way to take it. As in Adam, all who are in Adam die, so in Christ, all who are in Christ will live. The point in this context is that because Jesus rose from the dead, those united with Christ must also rise from the dead. But death has not yet been defeated, has it? Every one of us sitting here, we know someone somewhere who has died. Those captured by death, his POWs, are many, and they continue to pile up. That means that God has unfinished business in this world. God is still occupied with this battle, and it will take some time to complete. But God, the commander-in-chief, lays down here the battle plan. Here's how it will happen. Here is how death will be defeated. The process, first of all, is Christ's first fruits, verse 23. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then. So here's stage one of the defeat of death is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the resurrection of Christ, death was dealt a death blow. It is still living, it is still killing, but in the resurrection of Christ, we have the first stage. Now notice verse 23, it says, Then, each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then, when he comes, those who belong to him. So there is a second stage here of the defeat of death, and that refers to Jesus' return, when Jesus comes. This is after the death of Christ, after the ascension of Christ. So when Jesus comes back, there will be a second stage in the death of death. First Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So anyone who has fallen asleep in Christ and is still alive in Christ, but those in context here, those who have fallen asleep in Christ will be resurrected and death will be defeated in their case.
Then the end comes, verse 24. So we have Christ the first fruits, then at Christ's second coming, then the end will come. Now anybody in an amillennial perspective or somewhere along those lines will argue with, will spill all kinds of ink to explain why then doesn't mean a different time. We have a Christ, then at Christ's second coming, then the end. It seems to me that clearly we have three periods of time here. The amillennials will say, no, we just have two. Christ's coming and then his second coming. And the then in verse 24 is not temporal. But I think the easiest, straightforward way of reading it is without explanation to take the second then just like the first then. Then indicates a chronological sequence in keeping with verse 23. This, I believe, the end then is referring to Christ's subduing of every enemy, Revelation 19 and 20. At the close of the earthly millennial kingdom, he will deliver the kingdom over to the Father. Then, verse 24, the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. We'll get back to that thought in a moment, but let's go to verse 25. Here's the logical Point. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Again, in the time sequence here, it seems to make sense that Christ dealt a death blow to death at his resurrection, then will deal a second blow when he returns and his people are given life. And then, though death will continue after that time, will deal a final blow when all enemies are put under his feet. This fits together very well with John's revelation in Revelation 19 and 20. Now it says in verse 25 that he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. He must reign. That is, this is according to God's sovereign plan. He puts all enemies under his feet as an Old Testament figure of speech referring to total conquest. So Christ's stewardship of the earthly kingdom is not fulfilled until he has thoroughly defeated every enemy. Verse 26, what is the last enemy? What is the great enemy? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That says to me, and I, I think in the context of a war as we look at it today, in the context of death in which we live all of our lives, I think it says to me something very poignant. As long as people die, God is not finished with his business. God will defeat death absolutely. He's not done yet. By the end of the millennium, every soul will have been raised from the dead, and thus death itself will have been thoroughly defeated by Christ. Death will not keep a single soul, Revelation 19, Revelation 20. Here Paul turns to the Old Testament then for support, and he quotes from Psalm 8.6 in verse 27, where he says, He has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything is put under his feet, please understand this, Paul says, it's clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, 
and the, who he is throughout this just drives everybody crazy, and the NIV tries to help us out at a few places, but it doesn't ultimately concern us. When he has done this, and I think it is when God has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, God, or it could be when he, Jesus, has done this, then the Son, Jesus himself, will be made subject to God the Father, who put everything under him, under Christ, so that God may be all in all. When he has done this, let's go very quickly, we'll come right back, but to Revelation 19. When has he done this? Or when will he do this? Revelation 19 and verse 11. We are looking here to, I believe, the end of the tribulation period. And we have here Revelation 19 and verse 11, John's description of that time. Revelation 19:11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Let's jump down to verse 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider of the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged them themselves on their blood. So death is still very much in operation here. Now 20 in verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ. A thousand years. So this defeat seems, if we take it at face value, to come prior to this reign. The beginning of the reign is the defeat of these enemies and the resurrection of Christ's people. Verse 7, when the thousand years are over, there's still an enemy left. Satan will be released from his prison and will go out and deceive the nations, the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the, on the seashore. Death is still not done. For they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and destroyed them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet, prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, earth and sky, fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what, had, what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each 
person was judged according to what he had done. I don't know how else to read this, but that this is resurrection. This is people standing in bodily form before Christ. Death gives them up. Death lets go. Body, spirit separated is over. And they stand again before Christ. Then, verse 14, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, go back to 1 Corinthians 15. And then it says in verse 27, For he has put everything under his feet. That does not include God. But verse 28, When he has done this, that is, when he has subjected all things, Satan and all of his emissaries, and even the enemy of death. Now, there is no way to subject the enemy of death unless every disembodied spirit is brought together again with its body. Jesus, at this point, has defeated all enemies. Then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. I have a very tough time understanding how this verse makes sense unless Jesus rules an earthly kingdom for a period of time. Why do I say that? If Jesus is now ruling in a figurative millennium, why is he not subject to the Father now? What will change that relationship? But as in his second coming, Jesus will serve on earth and he will have a job to do to subject every enemy. Jesus as the God-man will serve, as, will serve to subject the physical, fallen universe to the Father. During that time, He will reign supreme over His kingdom, His temporal kingdom. But having defeated every enemy, including the resurrection of every soul, the Son will turn the kingdom over to the Father and subject Himself to the rule of the Father in the eternal state. So that forever and ever the Son will submit to the Father, not as an inferior, certainly, but in economic triunity along with the Spirit in the eternal state. And God will be in that state all in all. In other words, Christ's temporal, millennial kingdom has a point to it. It has a terminal objective. And one of those terminal objectives is for this reigning Christ to defeat every enemy, and that greatest enemy will be death. So that God is all in all. That might be God is all in everyone, or God is absolutely everything. Whatever it means, we know that He will reign supreme through all eternity, and that death will be finished. And so, writes Gordon Fee, in raising Christ from the dead, God has set in motion a chain of events that must culminate in the final destruction of death and thus of God's being once again as in eternity past, all in all. That helps me sing. This stuff helps me sing. This is the stuff, the truth on which we stand so that we can come together on the Lord's day and say with absolute assurance, God isn't finished his business, but he will win. He started it in Christ. He will finish it in the end. And death 
will be defeated. How can you sing? How can you be filled with joy in a world where people are dying and death continues this aggression against every soul? We can sing because we know this isn't the last chapter. That is not death's domain. And there are no contingencies with God. So in the end, the Corinthian accommodation of worldly philosophy and their belief system led them to embrace a low view of the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign over death itself, and He is working His plan over the centuries. Boy, it makes you humble, doesn't it? You feel pretty small. We're this little tiny blip on this long scale that includes at least a thousand years, plus some, from our time, and perhaps much longer. But there is the working, the slow, plodding work of God in all of this, who rules sovereignly over the events of mankind. He knows how many will die today, and He knows how many will die to the very end. But in the end, death will be destroyed. Every spirit put together with its body in resurrected form for eternity. That's, this is all, let me go back to the Corinthians error. This is always the result of integrating worldly thinking with the Scriptures. If I can challenge you here, we have seen, kind of in a spotlight way, we've looked at this case study. The Corinthians simply imbibed their philosophical worldview, brought it into the church, integrated it with Scripture, and Paul says, by putting his arm around them, listen, I want you to understand, you just destroyed everything. And you didn't even know it. We need to be very cautious that we do not allow common, sophisticated, popular, worldly thoughts to come into our system of Scripture and to integrate with it in such a way that the Word of God is destroyed. And the attack today is from many different angles. Not only the resurrection of Christ, as a matter of fact, today it's established. There are people in seminaries in this country teaching the next generation of pastors that Jesus did not really rise from the dead. Not only are they a little confused about it, they've turned it into a whole system and they teach it. But beyond that, there are many more subtle ways that are temptations to all of us to see within this world's philosophy ideas that we grab a hold of and integrate with Scripture so that the sufficiency of the gospel is compromised. And you know what? In the end, that's what Satan always attacks. Every false doctrine always works its way back to the gospel. In some sense or another, it will say that the death of Jesus Christ was not what it was or the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not what God says it was. In the end, every false doctrine will come back here because Satan knows what matters. He knows that this is the heart of all that we are and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. So by failing to carefully attend to the truth of the gospel, by failing to maintain it and adorn it, these believers were actually claiming that there was one enemy that God would never defeat. Everyone will remain in death, spirit separated from body. 
that means in Paul's thinking and in God's thinking, that enemy will never be defeated. No, says Paul, every enemy will be defeated. Now, I don't think the Corinthians would have ever put it in those words. Nor do we put it in words when we deny the sufficiency of the gospel of Christ in the part of the believer. No one runs around and says, listen, I want to tell you this, the Bible is really not sufficient and the salvation in Christ is really not sufficient to deal with the problems of the modern soul. No one starts on their advertisement sending you that to get you to their conference where they then teach you that the Bible is not sufficient to take care of the problems of the common soul of, of, of mankind. I'm not going to say those things up front, but we have to be careful to discern when that is in fact happening. They just innocently saw the body, if I can put that in quotes, innocently, as a worthless tomb. No harm done by leaving it in the dust. Oh yes there is, says Paul. You just destroyed the gospel. You just said that God won't defeat the ultimate enemy, death. What they failed to see, Paul taught them. What seemed so innocent was a destruction of the gospel and rendered God inept and less than sovereign. Let us pray that we do not similarly permit our world's philosophies to suck our theology dry of all redeeming value. And it's happening in churches all over this land and all over this world. The gospel is a first priority. In Paul's reasoned refutation, we are encouraged also to remember that God is all in all. Nothing will defeat our God. His victory will be complete victory. His kingdom will never end. Here is hope for eternity and confidence in the face of death. So I would be negligent not to say this as we close today. If you are not in Christ, if you have not come to embrace the gospel of Jesus crucified and risen, for the salvation of your sins. Let me say to you, death will not win in the end over you. There will be a resurrection, but your spirit and body will be brought together and your body rejuvenated and made different and new to stand before a Christ whom you have rejected. I would call you today to join the harvest. Join with Christ as the one, the first fruits, who defeated death in His resurrection. And know that your sin destines you to death and a Christless eternity. But by coming in faith before Jesus Christ and receiving the salvation that He has provided, you can join His army. And you can beat death through and so says Paul in the great conclusion of this all, if Jesus rose from the dead and you are united with him, what happened to him will happen to you. We can come and sing, then it is well with my soul. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we thank you for these tremendous truths and we realize that we don't understand them as we ought. They are deep, 
But Lord, there is a, a great joy in my heart right now, and I trust in the heart of all of your people to think what a wonderful plan you have. You are never shooting from the hip, but you have a perfect plan that you are patiently working to perfection. God, we rest in the ultimate defeat of death. We know that you, as our commander, as our authority in God, will bring this about in your time, and we rejoice. God, it is hard to see people die. It is hard for us to come to terms with the fact that we may well, should you not return before, come to a place where we too fall into the hands of this enemy. But God, I praise you that those who belong to Christ will never see death. Though we die and pass this life, we will not ever belong to that realm. But we belong to the realm of life. And we rejoice in that tonight. And we thank you for it in the name of our Savior. Praying for anyone who is not united with Christ through faith in the saving power of the gospel. Please, Lord, if they don't know anything else, I pray that you would just frighten them. And I pray that such a person in our presence today would seek someone out and say, I need to be on Christ's side. What do I do? What do I believe? Please work to that end, I pray, if there would be any that know you not as Savior. And we give thanks before your throne as the sovereign of the universe that you will defeat death. We have no fear in the face of death. Because we trust you, our God. Help us to realize that faith, to walk in its victory every day. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Let's